myself davis wawachan uh, a student of international relations specializing in multilateral diplomacy in moscow state institute of uh, international relations in russia i am a part of a think tank in italy known as ITSS Verona and I'm also a part of uh, as a research intern I work in Chennai Center for China Studies and the Peninsula Foundation in Chennai. Uh, hi this is Stanley Joni International Affairs Editor of the Hindu. You're listening to Indo-Pacific Voices, a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific. Today uh, we are going to discuss about the Ukrainian crisis and its implications in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, good afternoon sir. So sir, how will the Ukrainian crisis and the following international reaction affect the immediate geopolitical environment in the Indo-Pacific region? Uh hi Davis, so uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, I think a few things we have to uh you know take into consideration when talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its possible implications on the Indo-Pacific region. Uh I think the primarily what will happen is that the countries in the Indo-Pacific region will definitely have to make a reassessment of their strategic calculations. Uh I think it's because the old model has practically been demolished because what we saw in the case of Ukraine is that you know the Russians uh they just went into Ukraine they are taking territories of Ukraine so there were you had the Budapest Budapest declaration you had all all kind of international agreements were there the two Minsk process uh Minsk process was the Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 were there uh but none of this actually prevented the Russians from going into ukraine and practically getting what they want uh so uh, so yeah on the one side you see uh, it is the russians are flouting the international laws and on the other side they are also they are it's not just invading a country they are also carving out territories of ukraine and ukraine despite the support it is getting from the west is not able to resist the russians or push back the russians from their territories so what you see is that you know the the powerful the superior force is doing what it wants to do and the weaker force is taking the hit now if you look at the indo pacific region see in the case of ukraine there is this budapest declaration of course budapest memorandum so according to the budapest memorandum the russians the americans and the brits the britons they uh promised security assurances to ukraine in return for ukraine uh, abandoning its nuclear uh, assets as well as its missiles of course yeah the russians violated this uh, agreement here because they started the war but the americans and the britons also by agreement they uh, had promised to offer protection to ukraine so what you see here is what did the americans do yeah of course they supported uh they sent weapons they sent money etc etc the britons britain also did the same thing but eventually they also said that they were not ready to escalate this into a conflict with russians they also said that they won't do anything directly to defend the ukrainians 
So at the end of the day, they practically even right before uh, the Russian invasion began, the United States shut down its embassy and left Kiev. Uh, they moved their embassy to the Polish border. Most other countries did the same thing. So if Ukraine had actually, you know, thought that they would get support, sizable support, or they would get their Western partners to come for their defense, that didn't happen. So in the case of the Indo-Pacific region, you look at the countries, you look at Japan, you take a look at Taiwan, which is, you know, the self-ruled island called the Taiwan. So you take any of these, these regions, you know, Japan is an American ally. So Taiwan is also practically an American ally. So if a conflict breaks out in the region in the future, what will happen? Will the United States do the same thing which it did to Ukraine if a conflict breaks out in um, uh, in, in, in Indo-Pacific? So these are the questions I think these countries would be facing. Also, you take the larger Asian region, you know, there are actually fault lines everywhere in West Asia, in Northeast Asia. So in Northeast Asia, specifically Japan and China has a long history. You know, there is much bad blood between these two. And Taiwan also, you know, because it's internationally recognized that Taiwan is part of China, but Taiwan is a self-ruled island. And the Chinese have made it abundantly clear that, uh, you know, uh, they would, whatever, within quotes, they would do uh, everything they can to protect the territorial integrity of China, which means no independence for Taiwan. So there are these fault, line, fault lines in these regions. So what will happen if a conflict breaks out in the Indo-Pacific region? So I think for all these countries, uh, what they would do is, what they would practically do is to look for options to bolster their credible deterrence, to bolster it thereon, instead of relying completely on their partners. Because the Ukrainians had relied on their partners and their partners did not actually come to their rescue. I think that's the lesson countries in the other parts of the world would take from the Ukraine conflict. Uh, okay, so uh, as you said, uh, so there is a, a very deep analysis of evaluation done by the powers in the Indo-Pacific regarding this whole Ukrainian crisis and the reaction the Western countries gave it for, in, during this whole process. So, as an international expert, uh, my next question will be, as, as we all know, since the beginning of the Russian special operations in Ukraine, the North Korean regime has increased the missile activity. How is this going to impact the balance in the Pacific region? Yeah. Uh, this is another, uh, I mean, it's connected to what we discussed in the previous question, you know. Like the North Koreans again, like any other country, they would look at the Ukraine crisis and they would see what conclusion they would draw, the North Korean leader, what conclusion he would draw from the Ukraine crisis. He will never go for nuclear disarmament, right? He will never go for denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Because already there are bad examples before him. For example, uh, you see Iraq. Iraq had a nuclear program, which the Israelis bombed in, in, the, in the 1980s in Osirak. And uh, by the time the Americans went to Iraq, Iraq didn't have any deterrence at all. The Americans just went there, invaded Iraq, toppled the Iraqi regime, destroyed the Iraqi state, and then practically they, they demolished that country, right, in 2003. And take the case of Libya. So Libya uh, also had 
some clandestine nuclear program which Mama Gaddafi gave up on his own because he wanted to improve ties with the West. But then in 2011, what happened? NATO, the same NATO which we all are talking about today, uh, you know, they uh, launched their uh, liberation of Libya campaign and then what, what happened to Libya since then? Practically, they destroyed the Libyan state as well. And Muammar Gaddafi was, uh, he was brutally killed. He was assassinated. His regime collapsed. And Libya now has uh, two governments, two parliaments. And Tripoli, as we discuss now, Tripoli is witnessing fierce battle between two factions in Libya. And we are talking about a country which was one of the most stable countries in Africa. Uh, so, uh, and then take the case of Iran. Iran struck a deal with the United States, decided to scuttle its nuclear program, and it was 100% compliant with uh, the terms of the agreement. And then what? Just a change of uh, regime in the United States, a new president came who threw away the nuclear deal and started his maximum pressure strategy, which took uh, both the US and Iran you know, almost to a war after the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general by the Americans. So, uh, so the North Korean leader would be looking at these incidents. So he, I mean, definitely if he is a rational person, if he is a realist, he would uh, uh, ask himself, why should I give up my nukes? Because nukes are the only thing that is guaranteeing safety to me. You know, some kind of safety assurances uh, to me. And then in the case of the Ukraine, I think Ukraine crisis, uh, the Ukraine war reinforces this perception. Would Russia have invaded Ukraine if Ukraine had nuclear weapons? Because Russia also, Russia is not ready to fight a war. I mean, at least Russia is not triggering a war with NATO. Right? Russia is threatening non-NATO members. Because Ukraine, yeah, Ukraine defended well, resisted well, in a sense, in the, at, at least in the early stages of the war. But at the end of the day, Ukraine cannot stand for a long time against the superior Russian military force. The Russians knew this. That's why the Russians are now fighting a war of attrition. So Ukraine practically didn't have enough deterrence against the Russians. Right? So the North Koreans would be thinking the same thing, I think, because across the uh, 38th parallel uh, in Seoul, Seoul is practically under the American nuclear umbrella. And Japan also, Japan is not you know, Japan has the capability to develop nuclear weapons, but it won't do that. It is practically a nuclear power without nuclear weapons. That's what Japan's nuclear status. And Japan is also another American ally, which uh, Japan continues to host thousands of American soldiers. North Korea does the same thing, no? In the outskirts of Seoul, there is a, an American military camp. You will see American soldiers in Seoul all the time. Uh, so, uh, so from, from uh, no, South Korea I'm talking about. So from a North Korean point of view, uh, they are, uh, North Korean Kim, uh, Kim's regime would be thinking that uh, this nuclear weapons is the only thing that is providing them deterrence against possible threats from uh, the United States or its allies. So this explains why he is now doubling down on his nuclear threat or his missile arsenal or his long range rockets. I think this is the context. So, as you analyzed, uh, we can expect uh, more countries who are against the Western regime going for uh, the idea of deterrence and uh, there's a high chance of nuclear pro proliferation uh, in the, especially in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so, by keeping in mind that point, uh, we are seeing a Russian military operation in Ukraine, which is progressing. 
uh, on this side of Asia, the Chinese Navy and Air Force are continuously increasing their warfare capability and readiness. Uh, and recently we had reports of uh, Chinese building new warships, uh, which was um, taken by uh, by a satellite, uh, a U.S. space uh, satellite, and uh, it's all it's all over the all over the world. And how is this form of activity a threat to Chi uh, Taiwan? As the Chinese have repeatedly been talking about the reunification of Taiwan with China, which where this was also discussed in the recent Shangri-La conference. Yeah. Uh, see, the Biden administration after Biden became the president. At least three times, President Biden has said that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China takes over the island by force. But then the White House ret retreated, practically issued a statement saying that our policy hasn't changed. So the United States policy since the 1970s is that Taiwan is part of China. So it's the one China policy, but at the same time, the status quo. The status quo is that Taiwan is a self-ruled island, and no, which is not ruled by Beijing. So the status quo should not be altered by force. And if the status quo is altered by force, the United States would support it. It doesn't say there is legislation in U.S. Congress passed in U.S. Congress that states that the United States is required to support Taiwan. It doesn't say whether the United States too should go for uh, militarily defending Taiwan against China, but at least sending whatever supplies and weapons, etc., etc. But President Biden said that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense. That is the promise we made. That's what he said in his last quote. Uh, so the Chinese, I think, think the U.S. policy is changing. You know, of course, there is plausible deniability because the White House would issue a clarification saying that the policy hasn't changed. But in my view, the Americans were sending a very carefully crafted message that our policy is evolving. So it is they, are, they, were, they were actually telling the Chinese that if you are taking the island by force, you know, there is a high probability that we would come to Taiwan's defense. They are not saying that in certainty, but they are sending the message in pieces. That's what the Americans are doing. So China sees that as a threat, you know, because if that is true, if the U.S. policy has changed, if China takes over the island by force, that would lead to an open war between the United States and China, which would be catastrophic for both sides. There is no doubt about it. Uh, so I think this is what is making China's overall approach towards Taiwan is also more muscular these days. And in the larger context, you see the U.S.-China competition is hotting up, right? I think the Ukraine crisis and Russia is an aberration. The main geopolitical contest of the 21st century would be the one between the United States and China. China is the second largest economy. China has built the world's largest navy. China has kind of, you know, uh, at least in the South China Sea region, it had established its dominance. Uh, so the United States is trying very hard to you know, match with the ch growing Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific region. It is building new allies, it is signing agreements like AUKUS, etc., etc. So this competition is actually hotting up. So it's like, it's like 1940s Eastern Europe, right? Uh, like after the Second World War, once the terms of, the, once the structures of the Cold War were in place, 
Stalin or the Soviets, they never managed to take the whole of Germany. Germany got divided between East and West. So the Germans, the, the Soviets actually played a sizable role in liberating Germany from the Nazis, but still, you know, Germany got divided and once the Cold War was in place, it became East and West and uh, neither the uh, uh, Soviets got the Western part of Germany nor the Americans got the Eastern part. The same case with uh, Korea also, right? South Korea, North Korea was also divided like that. So it's like if uh, once the structures of the new Cold War in place, the Chinese fear that they would never able, they would never be able to get Taiwan back. And Taiwan was part of historically part of China. There is no doubt about it. You know, this separation happened only after the fall of uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's regime, or after Chiang Kai-shek was uh, uh, thrown out of uh, the Chinese mainland. Uh, so the Chinese wanted Taiwan back. And the Chinese would like to get Taiwan back by 2049, which is which would see the 100 years of the rule of the Communist Party. And the Chinese also see the Taiwan, Taiwan being a separate island, as the last vestige of their 100 years of humiliation. You know, they got Hong Kong back, they got Manchuria back, and uh, they got uh, Macau back. Everything they got back, you know, because Manchuria was with the Japanese. Macau was with the Portuguese, Hong Kong was with uh, the British, all, all, all these regions were part of China and Taiwan is the only one that is still staying out of Chinese influence. They want Taiwan back. I think that's uh, written in the storm, at least for the Chinese. But they fear that uh, once this, uh, as this competition between China and the United States is hotting up, it would be difficult for them in the future to take Taiwan back. And the Americans also know that they want Taiwan back. So that Taiwan now remains the most important flashpoint in this geopolitical contest in the Indo-Pacific region. So in the case of uh, um, Ukraine, what you see is again, what I discussed in the, uh, in, in the previous question, in, the, in my answer to the previous question, is that the Russians, um, they are actually getting what they want through force. Russians wanted Eastern Ukraine and they are getting Eastern Ukraine. So this again, uh, you know, raises the question whether the Chinese would do the same thing, whether the Chinese would uh, just move in and uh, attack Taiwan and take the island. Uh, so I think uh, the Ukraine crisis has actually, uh, uh, you know, made the Taiwan issue much more, what we say, it's become a much more urgent issue in the evolving competition between these two powers. And uh, finally, when we come into the conclusion of this discussion, as you said regarding your deep analysis regarding the geopolitical situations and tensions and how Indo, Indian Ocean and the Indo-Pacific region becoming a hotbed of this whole uh, geopolitical stunt, uh, what are the possibilities of a renewed arms race in the Indo-Pacific as an effect of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? And what will be the role of AUKUS in such a situation? Uh, yeah, AUKUS is actually nuclear prolifer proliferation. No, the Americans were against nuclear proliferation till AUKUS was signed. So basically, the US would be sharing nuclear technology with nuclear submarines, etc., with Australia. Uh, so AUKUS actually was uh, the signing of AUKUS. I think was one of the most defining moments of the 20th century geopolitical competition in the Indo-Pacific region. Because AUKUS is a military alliance, right? 
So the United States clearly, the United States, uh, you know, sent the signal that they wanted to build a military alliance in the Indo-Pacific region aimed at China. So AUKUS would take, it would take some eight years, I think, before they implement it fully, before they, uh, you know, um, complete the supply of uh, nuclear technology and submarines. Uh, so, which means the United States expects that uh, maybe in 10-15 years, there would be a proper Cold War type contest in the Indo-Pacific region between the United States and China. And in that contest, uh, um, you know, Australia will be their main ally and perhaps Japan also in the future and South Korea, you know. So, these countries could be America's security allies, security partners. India is part of Quad, but India, uh, at least till now, India has made it clear that India doesn't want to turn Quad into a security partnership. It is a grouping, it is not an alliance. India is very uh, clear about it, at least till now. You know, despite the problems you have with China, India doesn't want to join any military alliance with other countries that is aimed at containing China. That's what Indian position is, which is the same approach in my opinion. Uh, but at the same time, Australia and Japan and South Korea look at China differently. And all these three countries are dependent on the United States for security assurances. So it's possible that these countries, either they could join AUKUS or they could, they could build some other mechanism, some other security uh, alliance, some other security partnership in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so, um, you know, as we discuss... Uh, these things now, this is still the very early stage of the security competition of this geopolitical contest. But I think you can already see the effects uh, on many countries. Chinese defense minister publicly said the other day that China is reinforcing its nuclear arsenals, right? So the arms race you talked about is already happening, right? And the United States is sharing nuclear technology with other countries. Now, you know, which means nuclear proliferation is happening. Australia, which is not a nuclear power, will get uh, nuclear submarines, which it would use uh, for surveillance activities in the South China Sea or in the Pacific, uh, you know, South Pacific or North Pacific Ocean or wherever they wanted to do. So it is already happening, the arms race or nuclear proliferation, all these things are already happening. And then we should also see what kind of a direct impact the Ukraine conflict will have on Japan. Because Japan is practically, it is a de facto nuclear power. You know, right now Japan is completely reliant on the United States for security assurances. But within Japan, Japan has a very violent, complicated past. Very violent past. And there are political sections in Japan which are, you know, kind of uh, gaining some currency that, who are, you know, who push the Japanese authorities to uh, abandon their pacifist post-war approach and then take a more muscular foreign and defense policy. So it is, uh, uh, as I said, it's a very early stage, but it would be interesting to see how these developments, including the Ukraine war, will affect the evolving security dynamics of the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, as we analyzed, uh, let's hope, uh, as you said, uh, we are in the starting of the whole geopolitical uh, standing the Indo-Pacific region. Let's hope there will be peace and stability in this region and uh, on a larger note in the world. And let's hope the Russia-Ukraine crisis will come to an end with a peaceful note. 
um, it was an honor talking to you sir and uh, your informative words will will help the younger generation to analyze uh, the ongoing geopolitical trend and uh, it was it was nice talking to you thank you thank you dr thank you for tuning in read this conversation on spotify apple and google podcasts to stay updated visit our website ipcircle.org and follow us on twitter at ip_circle the opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the council for strategic and defense research or the center for policy research